A data platform contains all the data that a company has accumulated over the years. Across a data platform, there's a multitude of data sources. Databases, a data lake, data warehouses, a distributed queue perhaps, like Kafka. And there's also external data sources like Salesforce or Zendesk. A user of the data platform often has a question that requires multiple data sources to answer. How does this user join multiple data sources from a data lake? How does this user join data across a transactional database and a data lake? How does the user join data from two different data warehouse technologies? Presto is an open source tool originally developed at Facebook. Presto allows a user to query a data platform with a SQL statement, and that query gets parsed and executed across the data platform to read from any heterogeneous data sources. For some use cases, Presto might be replacing the technology Hadoop MapReduce, or perhaps Hive, the technology that is built on Hadoop MapReduce. But for other cases, Presto is solving a problem in a completely novel way. Justin Borgman joins the show to discuss the motivation for Presto, the problem it solves, and the architecture of Presto. And he also talks about the company that he started, Starburst Data, which sells and supports technologies built around Presto. If you enjoyed today's show, you can find all of our past episodes about different data infrastructure subjects by going to softwaredaily.com. You can search for the technologies or the companies mentioned. And if there's a subject that you want to hear covered, you can feel free to leave a comment on the episode, or you can send us a tweet at software underscore daily. And you can also interact with us through our mobile apps, which have all of our past episodes. And those are all available at softwaredaily.com. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Justin Borgman, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You've been in the world of data engineering for about a decade. Give me your condensed view on how the data ecosystem has evolved since the days of Hadoop. Sure. I think what's been really interesting is is kind of the legacy of Hadoop. And, you know, a lot has been spoken about Hadoop's prime, perhaps, you know, waning at, at this point in terms of the, the number of people deploying it for, for new use cases. But I think it actually brought about a lot of really important concepts that will live on likely for, for years and maybe even decades to come. And, and namely, you know, this idea of a data lake. And, uh, you know, that used to be exclusively synonymous with Hadoop itself, but now with the emergence of cloud and, 
you know, S3 and, and cloud storage in general becoming kind of the new data lake, a lot of those concepts live on just in a, in a different form. And I think that's a lot of the legacy, in, in, including, you know, the development of open source data formats like ORC and Parquet, which now, you know, have a, a renewed, I think, future with a cloud object storage as, a, as the new data lake. You spent four years building Hadapt, which was a Hadoop company that was acquired by Teradata. What was the use case you were solving? So back then, somewhat similar to, to what we're working on still today, which was essentially this idea of build, building a SQL engine for the data lake. And back then, you know, that was Hadoop. So we were kind of SQL on Hadoop before it was even called SQL on Hadoop. And really the first query engine for Hadoop to allow you to run fast, interactive SQL analytics. And, and that really enabled new use cases for users to do traditional data warehousing analytics style tasks, whether that's business intelligence or, or simply running ad hoc SQL analytics. So that was our mission. We had spun out of the Yale Computer Science Department in 2010 to found that business, raise venture capital, built that over four years, and then ultimately sold that business to Teradata. And when you were building Hadapt and then sold it, at the time, the Hadoop vendors were building Steam AWS was constructing their own big data products like EMR, and large enterprises were starting to adopt big data. How were those enterprise customers choosing between the different data providers when they're looking out over the Hadoop vendors, the cloud vendors, the classical data products? What were the choices that the enterprises were making? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think, first of all, there's always the question of cost as well as flexibility. And I think those two points in particular were really well articulated by the Hadoop vendors, Cloudera, Hortonworks, and perhaps to, to a slightly lesser extent, MapR, in, in allowing people to basically store their data very cost effectively, work with it at scale, and really do you know analytics on big data, quote unquote. So I think that was part of the value proposition. I think the the challenges and maybe where Hadoop didn't fully hit the mark was on delivering high performance SQL-based analytics. I think when, when Hadoop was first starting to become more mainstream, some people at the time thought that, you know, SQL was was a legacy language and that that would be sort of the, the end of it. And people would be learning how to use MapReduce and, and programming in MapReduce. And I think that was a that was sort of a, a miss early on that that was later corrected by creating these SQL engines. And I think started to create this, this interesting you know, sort of choice for enterprise users. Do I do my data warehousing analytics in Hadoop or do I do it in a traditional data warehouse? And, and I think the low-hanging fruit during that period of time was essentially moving kind of ETL-related workloads to the data lake where maybe you, you could perform these kind of batch-oriented SQL workloads on a lower cost footprint and then only load your higher value data into your traditional data warehouse, whether that's Teradata or Oracle Exadata or what have you. So I think that was kind of an early reference architecture that you saw during that period. Let's fast forward to today. If we talk about the data ecosystem today, I can think of a few core abstractions. You have the OLTP databases like Mongo or MySQL, Postgres. You have a data lake that you can dump all your different kinds of data sets into. You have a distributed queue like Kafka. Maybe it's used for buffering data. And you have a data warehouse that data probably gets loaded into for OLAP queries. 
Give me your overview of the different components of the modern data platform. Yeah, I actually think you articulated it really well. And I think, you know, to some extent, m- many of those are really essential. Like you're, you're always going to need your OLTP operational style system to, to serve your, your application, be it a web application or, or what have you. You know, Kafka plays a really important role or other, you know, streaming technologies for sort of that real-time streaming data. And then to your point, at, at the end of the day, you, you want to be able to analyze all of the data that you have more holistically. And and that's essentially really the problem that, that we're trying to solve today with Starburst and, and with Presto as a technology is the ability to access all of your data where it lives and be able to create a holistic picture uh, via a, a SQL query as opposed to, you know, the time-consuming nature of, of ETL pipelines. And that's not to say that we're eliminating ETL pipelines, but rather giving you a, an option to at least access many of these data sources via SQL query. And and in some cases, you even have multiple OLAP systems where you have silos of data in, in, in one or the other, and you want to be able to join that together. Tell me more about the frictions or the difficulties of an ETL pipeline. Sure. So if you're a large enterprise, let's say, a, you know, a big bank or, or any, any complex enterprise that has a, a variety of, of different systems to work with, you know, the first step is sort of figuring out what data do you want to move and how do you want to transform it? And so there's a lot of human cycles involved in that process, having to figure out, you know, the right transformations to get your data in the right format in this in this ultimate eventual you know, enterprise data warehouse concept. And that's been kind of the, the methodology, I would say, for, for decades is that, you know, all of these different data sources have to feed pipelines into one kind of monolithic system. And, and that's, that's certainly what made Teradata very successful, I think, through the 80s and 90s was benefiting from being that, quote unquote, single source of truth. The challenge is each of those pipelines, you know, takes time, both in terms of, of human effort, but also in terms of, you know, the, the time it takes to actually physically move that data, transform that data. And then you end up with data duplication. Uh, you have copies all over the place. The copies may not be perfectly in sync. So one person's view of the data may actually be out of date relative to another person's view of the data. So I think those are some of the challenges with the existing model. But that's sort of, you know, the, the status quo today. We will get into Presto eventually, but to shed some more light on the standard data platform within a company, what is the purpose of the modern data warehouse abstraction? Well, I think the idea is to have that single source of truth where you have one location that you trust to be the most accurate, up-to-date, you know, in-depth view of the business itself. And so, you know, the, the theory is if I'm pulling in the right pieces of data from these various data sources into one place, I can give my analyst, ultimately representing the business, the tools with which to ask really any question that they'd like and understand their business, you know, more holistically that way. So I think that's that's the idea of the abstraction. Whether that all truly lives into one database or is distributed across a few databases is perhaps a, a different question, but I think that's the basic idea. And there are a variety of popular data warehousing tools. There's Snowflake, there's Redshift, Spark is used for applications that are similar to data warehousing. Tell me about the breakdown of the different data warehousing consumers. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, the Redshift and Snowflake community of users is very much that business analyst type of persona, someone who is perhaps using Tableau or Looker or or even MicroStrategy or Cognos, you know, whatever BI tool that that suits their fancy to ultimately ask questions of the business's data. And so they generally have a more more of a business orientation to them, but certainly understand data. And I think in today's day and day and age are are becoming more and more sort of data savvy in terms of uh, the types of analytics that they'd like to do, but ultimately catering to, to someone who's likely using a, a BI tool or some kind of a analytical tool on top of that, that database system. I think Spark, by contrast, is actually a little bit different. I think that generally t- caters more to the sort of hardcore, quote unquote, data scientist who is doing you know, more advanced analytics or training machine learning models, doing, you know, all those fancy things we like to categorize as AI. So generally, it's a it's a smaller group of individuals, but one 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 with a, a very high degree of, of technical sophistication. And so they feel comfortable, perhaps, programming in, in R or Python or Scala or what have you to express the analytics that they want to perform. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences between perhaps the two groups. Presto allows for querying SQL across any kind of data source. And in order to understand why that is useful, it's worth going back in time a little bit. Hadoop pushed us away from big SQL databases and towards queries that looked across files. Explain why Hadoop pushed us away from SQL and towards files. Well, I think the idea was first and foremost making it super scalable. So kind of one of the foundational elements of Hadoop was this Hadoop file system, which was distributed in nature, had built-in replication to make sure that you had, you know, really good fault tolerance from a persistence perspective, meaning that you'd have three copies of the data spread out across this cluster. And if one or two machines with that data died, you, you still had your data. So you, you had a lot of confidence in the resiliency, especially as you scale across hundreds or, or thousands of machines. I think you know the, the afterthought for Hadoop was this notion that actually SQL, at least as a language, is still critically important to the enterprise. And, and not only has it been that sort of lingua franca for for 30 plus years, it enables a broader set of users to be able to access that data. So that's really where the emergence of ORC and Parquet and Avro and, and other file formats first sort of came to be, was really trying to store data in a more efficient relational database-like format that was still an open format, meaning that multiple tools could actually access this data. And so to go back to one of your earlier questions around sort of Spark or Redshift or Snowflake, you know, Redshift and Snowflake are much more traditional in this sense that you load the data into the proprietary format of that database and you can only access it from that database effectively. By contrast, if you're storing your data in ORC or, or Parquet, I picked those two just because they tend to be the most popular that we find for sort of high performance analytics then you can read it from Spark or Presto or Hive or a variety of different tools. And so you get a lot of flexibility out of that. And we often find that you might have that data scientist group training machine learning models using Spark is accessing the same data that now a business analyst may access through Tableau using Presto, let's say. Presto originated at Facebook. What were the use cases that Presto originally solved at Facebook? Yeah, that's right. It was created by Martin Traverso, uh, Dane Sundstrom, and David Phillips back in roughly 2012, open sourced in 2013. 
The purpose at the time was essentially to create a faster Hive for the most part. So Hive was also created at Facebook. Interestingly enough, Facebook's been very visionary in, in this idea of sort of open data warehousing, if you will. But they needed a faster, more interactive solution because Hive was really better suited for those longer running batch oriented queries. So they sought to start from scratch. One of the challenges with Hive was that the the software was developed, I think, in a time in Facebook's history where maybe not all the best software engineering practices were in place at the time. So it was very hard to extend and, and really challenged in, in terms of its extensibility. Hortonworks put a lot of money and time into making it better with various execution engines that they swapped in and out over the years. But ultimately, it had a lot of technical debt associated with it. So Presto was a, a clean slate, starting from scratch, totally ground up development initiated by these three guys, and really designed to be as fast as possible. So there were some fundamental architectural differences that they chose in order to get that performance. First and foremost, queries are fully pipelined through memory. And there is no notion of, of checkpointing, which, which Hive has. So there's a trade-off there, of course. Hive has great query fault tolerance. If, if it's a five-hour job and you have a node failure, it'll, it'll keep going because it keeps writing intermediate sets to, to disk. Presto, you'd have to restart that query. But of course, you know, we would say, well, the Presto query should never take five hours to begin with. So <laughs> sort of like a different approach to, to similar problems. So that was a big part of the mo motivation was just strictly query performance. And then the other piece, which I think has really set Presto up really well for the future, is that it inherently had this idea of storage compute separation built in. And I think that's something people didn't fully appreciate back in 2013 when it was open sourced. I think people thought, okay, here's another SQL on Hadoop engine. But it's really a SQL on anything engine. And for Facebook, you know, they have a massive MySQL deployment, sharded MySQL, probably the largest in the world. And they wanted to be able to access that in addition to a lot of the data that they had in their Hadoop environments. So having a tool that was flexible, that wasn't tied to any one type of storage, uh, was really advantageous as well. That idea of checkpointing to disk and the fact that it slows down a query if I understand correctly, the reason that like a checkpoint to disk basically means like I might write a query in Hive that does something like query this set of files across HDFS, join it with this other data set, you know, filter out these entries, and then you want to checkpoint to disk and then do two or three other operations before you actually get to the final result. And the reason it's going to take something like five hours is because you have gigantic data sets and we're talking, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, something like that, seven years ago. And in contrast, a, a entirely in memory model would pull everything into memory. But uh, if it's all pulled into memory on a single machine, or if it's pulled into memory across several machines, and one of those machines fails, you might have to restart the entire job, because memory is not persistent. So uh, do I understand correctly the 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 trade-off between the in-memory model versus the checkpointing to disk model? Yes, that's essentially correct. Of course, Presto like Hive is a MPP engine, so you you can have your Presto cluster be as many nodes as you'd like to sort of increase the 
the, the total amount of memory available to execute those queries. And very often we see that a Presto cluster is its own distinct cluster, which may actually have very minimal disk capacity at all since it's not actually storing data, but is instead configured more in the direction of processing power and memory and then has a good network connect to your data source, which may be HDFS in this case, to execute those queries quickly. Now, we later did build a spill to disk function as a option for queries that may exceed memory, just so the query doesn't fail due to not enough memory. So, so that is a, a flag you can turn on effectively. But yes, the architectural trade-offs, I think you articulated really well. And when Presto got open sourced, it became adopted by other companies Netflix, Airbnb, I think Uber, some other companies. How have the use cases that other companies are applying Presto to, how do those compare to what Facebook has used Presto for? Yeah, that's a a great question. And I would say those companies that you mentioned who were the early adopters, you're absolutely right, probably had somewhat similar use cases in that they're also thinking in a data lake driven model where they're quote-unquote data warehouse is essentially either Hadoop or S3. And some of those companies had already moved to the cloud, like Netflix, for example. So those use cases were somewhat similar. Again, where S3 or Hadoop becomes that storage layer for your data warehousing activities, the, the data being stored either in ORC or Parquet, and pretty much an even split between those, those companies that you mentioned in terms of their predisposition towards uh, ORC or, or Parquet. But I think what really changed was maybe around 2015 when we started to get involved after coming to Teradata. So I, I mentioned in the earlier part about history, HeadApt was acquired by Teradata. It was really there that we met these three guys, Martin, Dane, and David, and basically asked them, hey, could we become you know contributors to this project? We think it has great fundamentals, great bones to the infrastructure, but is maybe missing some enterprise features that you know more traditional enterprises would need. Things like security, <laughs> LDAP integration, Kerberos integration, wire encryption, et cetera, et cetera, you know, full ANSI SQL coverage. At the time, it was it was a, a pretty good starting point on ANSI SQL coverage, but it wasn't complete. So it didn't support every, every single, you know, piece of the syntax. So those were some of the things that we started to invest in early in 2015 that I think started to broaden the use cases. And in particular, we also built additional connectors. So I I mentioned how kind of MySQL and Hadoop were maybe two of the early important ones, and of course, S3 and S3 compatible object storage. But we started to build out and advance other connectors like Microsoft SQL Server or Oracle or Teradata. And that allowed, I think, the you know more complex enterprise, if you will, the Fortune 500 enterprise who has already all these different data silos and doesn't benefit from the ability to sort of start in the cloud as many of these leading internet companies do. It allowed them to also have you know, great use cases for accessing data across these different data sources. And I could go into some details on, on some of those customer I- examples, but I think that's where the project started to, to expand beyond just these sort of internet companies and, and start to, to take on a, a life within retail, healthcare, financial services, media, telecom, et, et cetera. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. 
Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com sedaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz, and after the quiz, you get interviewed by Triplebyte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from Triplebyte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash sedaily. That $1,000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers, and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. TripleByte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. There are companies that are pre-cloud and companies that are post-cloud, and the companies that are post-cloud that are entirely in the cloud, Netflix, Airbnb, Uber, well, Uber not really because I think they have their own data centers now, but you know, there's a significant comparison between those kinds of companies that are post-cloud that have at least had the option to build entirely in the cloud and have built mostly in the cloud versus companies that have some heterogeneity like or, or entirely on-prem and that impacts how their quote-unquote data platform has gotten built, like what databases they use, what their, I guess, data lake looks like. And that has some consequences to how they're going to architect or, or use Presto, which we can get to. But can you just tell me a little bit about how the infrastructure of these different types of companies impacts their data platform? Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I would say, you know, in the in the case of the the pre-cloud, I guess as you described it, you know, maybe the enterprise that's been around a little bit longer and and has some of that infrastructure already built out in an on-prem environment, you know, one of their biggest challenges really data silos. If you take, let's say, just a big bank, because they tend to be very complex in nature, oftentimes their businesses are built through M&A, you know, merging with other banks and rolling up other banks and new business lines. And so now with each of those, they inherit uh, 
a new database of some kind. And ultimately, they want to be able to create kind of that 360 view of the customer, but that's very challenging. It creates a lot of complex ETL pipelines internally to try to get the data that they need. And very often, those are IT projects where the business is saying, I want the answer to this question. They don't know how to get it themselves. So this notion of self-service is is something that is highly sought after, but rarely uh, sort of realized today. And so they have to go to IT and say, hey, we, we need this data and that data. And then IT has to sort of figure it out. And, and that could be weeks before they can get to the answer that they want. So there's a lot of complexity there and a lot of data silo related problems. By contrast, you know, the other group, this sort of post cloud that you described has a real advantage in that they can try to centralize all of their data into one place. And what they very quickly realize is that the more data they can keep in S3, in open data formats, the lower cost and the more flexibility they have sort of going forward. So I think that's why you see a lot of these internet companies use S3 or again, whatever cloud is your is your favorite, could be Google Cloud Storage, could be Azure Data Lake, you know, it doesn't matter what, what storage, but, but the idea being that that's the low cost sort of storage tier and you're storing your data in ORC or Parquet. And that allows you to, to access that data from a variety of tools, keep it in a low cost place, and have really a lot of you know runway for for how you build out your architecture going forward. So definitely two different patterns that we see. And and honestly, that's part of what gets me excited about the prospects for Presto, because I think what makes it very unique is it, it really can cater to both groups. I think often people ask me, is Presto a data warehousing, you know, analytics tool and, you know, query engine for, for analytics, or is it a data virtualization tool? And it's, it's really a little bit of both, meaning, you know, you, you can have data in different data silos today and use Presto as a, an abstraction above that to get access to that data, to join across those data sources, but it also sets you up really well for the future where you might want all of that data in a cloud data lake type of model and access it there. And, and because it can do both of those, you can sort of build your business or build your, your BI infrastructure on top of one common SQL interface without having to you know, have multiple databases for different things. If I think about architectures that, if I'm just ignoring Presto, I can think about doing setting up data connectors to my S3 setting up data connector to my MySQL database and pulling data from S3, pulling data from MySQL into a data warehouse, pulling it into Redshift or pulling it into Snowflake, and then doing complex operations over those data warehouses. Alternatively, the Presto model would, you know, I could execute a SQL query that is aware of the schemas of the data in S3 or aware of the schemas in my MySQL database and Presto has its own data connectors and is going to execute those those queries across workers and and eventually give me an answer. How would those two patterns for getting an answer to a large query that is spread across these heterogeneous data sources, how would those two query paths compare to one another? So one thing we like to talk about, and this will answer your question, is this idea of kind of time to insight. Like essentially, what is the total time it takes from the moment that I have the question to the moment that I have the answer? And when you think about it that way, the time to insight includes the time required to basically get the data where you want it to be able to query it. And so I think what you're describing highlights this very, very well. In, in the sort of traditional data warehousing model, you would 
you would have to factor in the time it takes to ETL that data into that sort of central EDW model. In our case, the time is exclusively that that query time. So in some of those cases, it's possible that Redshift or, or Snowflake might be slightly faster in terms of executing that query because they've done a good job, especially Snowflake, in terms of optimizing their, their storage format for their query performance. So, you know, let's say a query on Snowflake takes five seconds, maybe it takes seven seconds on Presto. But if you factor in, you know, the time required to sort of go through that ETL process and get that data to load it in. And, and then also, of course, the opportunity cost of now that data is exclusively in Snowflake. You know, those are sorts of the, the, the kinds of, I think, challenges or, or at least factors that you have to think about holistically when you're thinking about, you know, time to insight. So that's essentially the difference. You know, with, with Presto, it's all done through that specific query, as opposed to doing that, that ETL process beforehand. And time to insight in this case, you basically mean there's actually going to be more engineering work that's going to go into like designing the ETL process. You know, if you have to design some ETL system for an ad hoc query, rather than you already have Presto configured with all of the connectors necessary for an ad hoc query, it's going to be a shorter quote time to insight. That's exactly right. And there's maybe even one other factor worth mentioning as well, which is the self-service ability. And what I mean by that is, that ETL work that you described is likely the time of a data engineer required to get that data set up so that the analyst can ultimately ask the queries of the data. By contrast, you know, if you've got all your connectors set up, you can you can theoretically make that available to your analyst to just run SQL queries against that data. You can create even views that actually hide where that data is, is specifically located, which data sources, and allow the analyst to basically ask those questions without the involvement necessarily of the, the data engineer. So he, he or she can focus on perhaps something else. Let's talk a little more about the architecture of Presto. So I know that if I issue a query to Presto, it's going to be issued to a coordinator. The coordinator is going to work with worker nodes to talk to the individual data sources and to break up the work of that query to distribute the work among the workers. Can you just walk me through the architecture of Presto in terms of a query? Yeah, that's that's effectively correct. The, the coordinator is the one responsible for creating the query plan and distributing the work among the workers. The workers are the ones who are actually executing the various components of that query. And again, you'd have hopefully a good network between those Presto workers and whatever data source you happen to be connecting to, whether that is HDFS, S3, or a traditional database. It will then push down predicates to those data sources. And depending on the particular data source, some of our connectors push down more than others. But essentially, you're only pulling back into the Presto workers, ideally, what is necessary to, to compute the join, let's say. You know, and then that query, ultimately, the query results get sent back to, to the user from Presto via ODBC or JDBC connectivity. There's also a REST API as well. In order to issue a query to the data that's available across my Presto infrastructure, my Presto system has to have an understanding of the schema of the different data sets that are across my organization. So if I have like a bunch of data sets in S3, I've got a MySQL database over here, I've got a Mongo database over here, 
I've got Postgres over here, and I want to issue some complex Presto query that's going to do a join between my Mongo database and one of my S3 data sets. I need to have an understanding of the schema of all those data sets. To what extent does Presto know the schema of all the data sets across my organization? Yeah, good question. And this is an area where I'll say there, there is some roadmap development being done to, to make this easier. But, but today, we do rely on the user, or you can, again, create views to sort of obfuscate some of this. But we would re- rely on the user, let's say, executing the ad hoc SQL query anyhow, to know the schema of the underlying data sources. Because essentially what Presto is doing is it a- it's actually reaching out to the catalog of that particular system. So if it's Oracle, it's actually speaking to the Oracle catalog. If it's you know Teradata, it's speaking to the, the Teradata catalog. For some people using AWS, we also have Glue catalog connectivity you know, in the case of Hadoop, it would likely be the Hive catalog, the Hive Metastore. So Presto itself isn't doing any necessarily, you know, reconciliation across these these various schemas. It's assuming that within the query, you know what you're looking for. And and the, essentially the syntax, without going into too much detail, is, you know, sort of data source A dot, you know, table name, you know, data source B dot table name. So you're actually specifying what data source the data is coming from. And a lot of that that knowledge is therefore a, a, a prerequisite. Again, you can use a, a view to hide where that data actually is and 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 sort of simplify that from the the user perspective. And many of our customers and, and users do that for their users. But again, this is an area of interest where you know there will likely be more development along those lines as well. So if I'm integrating with Presto on day one, what is the process of getting my is it, a, I guess, is a data catalog kind of like the, the catalog of all the different schemas that I could potentially query? Yeah. So it's all done through these connectors. So I think going back to that notion of sort of storage compute separation, Presto itself basically doesn't do anything until you set up at least one connector. The most common, of course, being the Hive connector, just because a lot of people have, have been accessing you know, HDFS. Interestingly, the Hive connector is a little bit of a misnomer because it's it's the same connector you would use to access S3 or other S3 compatible object storage. So it really should probably be called like the data lake connector. But, you know, that's one very common connector. Again, you would deploy any other connectors for the various data sources. And within that, you actually point to the catalog. And that's how it knows where to go to access that data. So it's really all about this connector model and, and very uh, modular that way. So the Hive, I guess the, the like legacy Hive infrastructure, how much does that know about the details of my, of my different data sets? I guess I, I, I'm just not super familiar with, with Hive. Sure. So the Hive catalog, and, and this is where it can get a little confusing, you know, there's Hive, the query engine, and there's Hive, the catalog or the Metastore. And they're actually kind of distinct things. So for example, even Cloudera's product Impala I believe uses the Hive Metastore. Drill, which was another SQL engine for Hadoop, also uses the Hive Metastore. And Presto also uses the Hive Metastore. Now, the good news with that, if you've already defined your tables, set up your DDL and the Hive Metastore, it's totally rip and replace. You don't have to actually change anything. You just point Presto to that Hive Metastore now, and and hopefully now all, all of a sudden you have faster queries. <laughs> There's no uh, you know data uh, transformation, no data loading, no you know redefining of the table definitions. So 
that's the really nice thing. You know, migration path from somebody already using a, a data lake architecture to Presto is, is almost instantaneous for that reason. The use case of Presto, is it for ad hoc querying, for dashboards, for machine learning applications? How do people actually use Presto? Yeah, great question. So ad hoc, definitely, I would say reporting, definitely kind of any of your traditional sort of data warehousing style analytical query workloads. So a lot of BI tools, connectivity, you know, dashboarding, certainly we have started to include caching into Presto as well. And we'll, we'll talk more about that probably in the coming weeks and months around those kinds of dashboarding use cases where you're, you're accessing the same data frequently. I would say machine learning is probably the one category I would again carve off more towards a Spark use case. Mm -hmm. And that's where we see really these two tools working together very commonly. Again, serving up different constituencies within a company, you know, again, the data scientist versus maybe the the, the analyst, but working off of the same files and, and working nicely within the same architecture. Can you tell me more about the relationship between the coordinator and the worker nodes when a query gets issued, like how does the parallelism work? You know, for example, if I've got a single really, really large data set in HDFS, are there multiple workers that are pulling that data off of HDFS? Or do the workers just, is there like an individual worker for each data set? Like just tell me more about the parallelism model. Yeah. So I, I will be honest, this is an area where certainly like our CTO or somebody else on the team could probably go <laughs> fair, into more fair detail enough. Fair enough. on exactly the query execution, but it is definitely highly parallelized, you know, even among that one data set that you're working on. Okay. Yeah. And do you know much about like how the, so if I'm doing a join, for example, like if one worker queries my SQL database, another worker queries my HDFS database, what happens during a join? Yeah. So again, this is a case where the connectors themselves, depending on the sophistication of the connector, and they do vary across the sort of portfolio of connectors. But what Presto will certainly try to do is actually push down filtering to the data source that you're accessing so that you're only pulling back the data necessary to actually execute that join. So rather than pulling the entire data set, for example, you're only pulling the necessary rows or columns or what have you to actually execute that join across those two data sources. So that makes it more efficient, minimizes the network bandwidth, and you know allows you to use your, your memory more efficiently to execute that query as quickly as possible. And does the information about what filters or I guess predicate pushdowns, does that information get created in the like the parsing and analyzing and the query planning step within the coordinator? Yes, that's exactly right. So subject to the capabilities of that connector, it will set up the appropriate query plan and push down as much as it can. Got it. So I issue my query to the coordinator coordinator figures out what I specifically need to get from each worker, and then the worker pulls necessary data via the data connector. Exactly. So Presto is optimized to read these columnar formats like Parquet. Those optimizations, are they something that's unique to Presto? Are there other systems that are able to read columnar files with as much performance, or does Presto do something unique with its optimizations? 
So certainly Hive can read from those file formats as well. There are other SQL and Hadoop engines that can read from that. And again, that speaks to sort of the history and the legacy of, of where these data formats came from really during that Hadoop heyday, if you will. But I think, again, what makes Presto pretty unique is the level of optimization. And, you know, in the case of ORC, that's that's used at Facebook. They've done extensive tuning to, to make that as fast as possible. I believe it's Netflix that uses Parquet and, and certainly many others. And they've done extensive tuning to the Parquet reader as well. So both of those file formats, you really can't go wrong with Presto because there's been such a level of, of optimization. And it all comes back to the architectural difference that we discussed in the beginning around really pipelining execution through memory as opposed to you know taking it in stages and checkpointing it at every step along the way and and that's what's able to deliver you know such fast performance presto has a cost based optimizer what does that mean so that means that the query plan takes into account the time cost associated with executing that plan and can therefore do various types of optimizations around join ordering and the sequence with which you execute that query plan to deliver the fastest level of performance. So that's something we built a couple years ago and was kind of a big step forward for Presto, you know, immediately gave maybe 10x performance boost overnight for queries in particular that have joins and sort of the more complex the join, the more the CBO gets exercised and is able to deliver, you know, greater performance gains. And I'll say just at a, at a high level, I think like directionally, these are the level of optimizations they think we're very interested in continuing to pursue with Presto because the more optimizations we can put in there, the more advanced you know Presto is as a data warehousing analytics kind of platform. You know these are these are optimizations that are not necessarily new to data warehousing analytics, meaning that you know Teradata or Oracle has many of these optimizations, but they're new to, you know, an open source query engine. And I think that's what's so exciting is is really taking the storage compute separated model, but building in the same level of performance optimizations that these more traditional databases have. Can you tell me more about your interaction with the potential enterprise customers or, or the enterprise customers that you have? What are the kinds of use cases, the problems that they're looking to solve with Presto? Sure, yeah. They definitely fall into the two categories that we sort of touched on a little bit earlier. You know, one being this idea of joining across two or more data sources. One nice example there would be Comcast. Comcast has a viewing behavior from the shows that you watch captured in a Hadoop data lake and also has billing data captured in a Teradata data warehousing system. And so, you know, they'd like to join across these two different systems, be able to correlate your viewing behavior with how much you spend, cross-sell, upsell, you know, a whole variety of sort of business benefits to being able to do those types of joins. And traditionally, that would have required an ETL, you know, pipeline to sort of get the data from one to the other to do those joins. So that's a nice example of Presto as this kind of, you know, abstraction or query fabric, I believe is the term that they use to describe the role that it plays in that architecture. And then on the other hand, we have companies like FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, who are actually a pre-cloud, I guess, company that became post-cloud pretty quickly and and has sort of led the financial services industry in in that transformation where they went from a number of on-prem traditional data warehousing solutions 
into AWS pretty aggressively and today leverage everything off of S3 and and I believe it's ORC file formats and, and query that with Presto. So that's more of that kind of open data warehousing analytics category of use cases. So those tend to be the two primary drivers. And, and we like to stitch those stories together by saying that Presto is great for that entire journey. And we, we find that all of our customers are somewhere on that spectrum. It's just a, a question of where they're starting. So the first use case that's Joining two data sets. Yep. The second one you described is you've just got a singular data source and it's just fast for that particular singular data source. Exactly. And you've sort of standardized on some open data format, again, whether that's ORC or Parquet. Mm. And so the use case of the join, as you said, basically your alternatives there, aside from Presto, are like a big hive query where you're going to be checkpointing to disk and it's going to be slower or a ETL job, maybe you ETL things into a data warehouse and then query off of the data warehouse, that's going to have some complexity penalty. Would you say that's, that's the trade-off there yes. for that use case? I, I would just add that you'd have to do ETL in either direction, right? Because you, you'd have to get the data sets into one place and you're either going to move it all into Hadoop and then you have Hive perhaps to do that, you know, which you know Hive has some, some performance limitations, but also you had to do that ETL step just to get it into Hive. Or you've moved it all into, let's say, Teradata or the traditional data warehouse. And again, you have that ETL step, but now you also have the consequence of perhaps overtaxing an already taxed environment. You know, many of these traditional data warehouses, just because of the cost involved, are often running at peak capacity already. And so adding more data to the equation is often a challenge in and of itself. It may require buying another box, for example. And what is required to deploy Presto? So when you're talking to these companies and the company like Comcast, what would be required for them to integrate with Presto? What would be the deployment path? Yeah. So first of all, I would say that we'll start with maybe the easy parts, which are if you already have data in Hadoop or S3 and it's stored in these open data formats and you're using the Hive Metastore for your, your table definitions, that part is pretty seamless. So you can just point Presto to it and query. Now, you would want to make sure that you have resources available for a Presto cluster. So it is also an MPP environment. And like we talked about, generally, you want to configure it with good CPU and, and memory and, and less so on disk because you're going to be pointing to some other data source. So if that's an on-prem world, you want to make sure you have a Presto cluster that's configured appropriately and, and again, has a high-speed high interconnect with your HCFS, perhaps, if, if that's Hadoop. Or if you're in the cloud, you're going to spin up machines to execute that Presto query. Now, what's nice is because Presto doesn't store data, you can actually spin those machines right back down after you're done if you'd like. And, and we've even built in some auto-scaling capabilities into the Starburst Enterprise offering just to make that a little bit easier for you. But that's kind of the first step, I would say, is, is sort of connect it with what you already know and, and then start to work with the connectors that seem appropriate to you. And if that's Teradata, if that's Oracle, if that's we have a Snowflake connector as well, you know, whatever data source you fancy, you know, start to start to work with that and set up that connector and, and start to run queries. And that's where we're always happy to help as well. I mean, if, if there's questions you have or query tuning related questions, you know, we're answering those all day long. So we're happy to be helpful. Tell me more about building the business. What is the strategy of Starburst today? 
So it's what would be classically known as an open core model. And, and what I mean by that is the core, Presto itself, is open source. It's licensed under the Apache license. And we're very committed to advancing that open core. We're extremely active members in the community. We represent actually the majority of the committers to the project. And that's an important aspect to our identity. In fact, just a few months ago, the original creators, Martin, Dana, David, that we spoke about earlier, joined Starburst. And they're now part of the crew here as well, and very involved in many of those community efforts. We host events over the course of the year all over the world. We've done them in India, in Singapore, in Japan, and of course, East Coast, West Coast. And that's an important aspect of it. The way that we make the business work, the way that we pay our salaries is by offering extra enterprise features around that. So in particular, we have security capabilities that are not available in the open source, things like role-based access control, being able to do row-level, column-level data masking. You know, those types of access control capabilities are generally very important to an enterprise. We have auto-scaling, which we mentioned for our cloud customers. That's important. We have a lot around manageability. We have a piece of our product called Mission Control, which makes it very easy to deploy and set up these various connectors and run your, your environment. And then, of course, there's the additional connectors, some of which we've actually turned into parallel connectors, which are something that you can only get from Starburst. So for example, if you want to be able to access data from Teradata or Snowflake, you know, very quickly, we have a parallel version of those connectors that delivers better query performance when pulling data from those data sources to execute your query. And then the last piece, of course, is the 24 by 7 support that you get from the actual creators of the project. So that's kind of the, the offering that we wrap around that core. And I think the way that we think about those trade-offs is we want to make sure that Presto itself is as great as it can be relating to you know, performance and stability and so forth, and then add these extra features that an enterprise would need to deploy in a real production kind of mission-critical scenario. Now, I can imagine the ideal integration experience for me is like, let's say I'm a bank. And I've got like 100,000 engineers or something, some crazy amount of engineers. I don't know how many engineers a big bank has, but a lot. I've got so many different data sets. Ideal situation would be I get integrated with Presto, and Presto has a catalog of all of my data sets. But it's perfectly permissioned so that the only people who have access to can perform joins in the right places are you know, the engineers who should have access to that data. I can imagine that setting up and properly permissioning all of those different integrations would be time consuming. And I'm sure that like realistically an integration doesn't stretch across the entire organization, probably stretches across some subset of the organization, but I just like to get a picture for what it takes to integrate with a large customer or like do they want their entire all of their data sets within the organization indexed within the Presto data catalog, or do they just have some specific subset of use cases that they're asking for help with? So it, it varies. I would say uh, very commonly people start with you know a smaller piece of the puzzle, and that may be simply accessing data in Hadoop or S3 or even on-prem object storage is actually an emerging data lake format that we've seen where people are using 
IBM's CleverSafe product or Red Hat's Ceph or Minio, which is a startup out here in the Bay Area, that are all S3 compatible. So they look like S3. You know, whatever the case may be, they, they start with something, you know, relatively contained and, and perhaps it's joining data in that data lake with one other data source as a starting point. But usually, you know, one of our biggest kind of champions within our, our customers tends to be the architect or architecturally minded individual who's thinking about the big picture and how do we build this thing that can stand the test of time as we kind of roll out our, our journey to whatever that new architecture looks for them in many cases you know, has some component of the cloud involved. And that's where I think the flexibility of Presto is very attractive. I, I use the term sometimes optionality as being a core part of the, the value proposition in that it is so flexible that those data sources can change, where the data lives can change, it could be on-prem in the cloud, it could be some combination, it could be multiple clouds. There's just so much flexibility that I think that is something that's generally well appreciated and creates kind of a roadmap internally for many of these customers of how how they'd like to roll Presto out over time. Today's show is brought to you by Heroku, which has been my most frequently used cloud provider since I started as a software engineer. Heroku allows me to build and deploy my apps quickly without friction. Heroku's focus has always been on the developer experience. And working with data on the platform brings that same great experience. Heroku knows that you need fast access to data and insights so you can bring the most compelling and relevant apps to market. Heroku's fully managed Postgres, Redis, and Kafka data services help you get started faster and be more productive. Whether you're working with Postgres or Apache Kafka or Redis, and that means you can focus on building data-driven apps, not data infrastructure. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to learn about Heroku's managed data services. We build our own site, softwaredaily.com, on Heroku. And as we scale, we will eventually need access to data services. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of Heroku's managed data services, because I'm confident that they will be as easy to use as Heroku's core deployment and application management systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to find out more. And thanks to Heroku for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And what's been your experience building the business thus far? How does building a data company today compared to building a data company, what was it, eight years ago, 10 years ago? How's the market different? Yeah, this has been, I'll be honest, a lot more fun. And, and I'll tell you a couple reasons why. I think we, we did things a little bit differently this time around. I think, first of all, open source is just so important. And I think that was one of the clear lessons we learned through the first business. You know, we, we were proprietary at Hadapt, but we sold on top of an open source technology. And even though we were maybe a better or faster query engine than Hive or Impala, because those were free and open source, they just had much broader adoption. So I think one of the cool things about Presto is obviously it, it is open source. It has a real community associated with it, and it's global in nature. We have customers all over the world. 
And that's been really fun. You know, it's, it's almost like a social media app. Like once you create it, you don't know where it will go, but sometimes you, you hit it, hit on something and, and it starts to take on a life of its own. And I, I feel like there's an element of that with Presto that's been a lot of fun. The other big difference for us, which has been fun, is we actually didn't take venture capital right away. We bootstrapped this business for the first two years and actually grew it as a cash flow positive, profitable business. And and I say that not not to brag about it, but rather that it actually gave us a lot of freedom to make decisions, you know, sort of with our own, I guess, level of, of sort of experimentation built in. We could sort of be patient and take our time and do things the way that we felt needed to be done. And I, I think that was a really refreshing way to build a business, especially in those early days where you're sort of trying to find product market fit and, and understand use cases, understand how people are using it. We really didn't have any time pressures. And I think that's that's also special. And I think that's now, even though we've raised capital, we just raised $22 million from from Index and a gentleman named Mike Volpe, who's had a lot of success around open source businesses in particular, Confluent, Elastic, et cetera. One of the nice things is I think we've kept that culture of essentially trying to be authentic in the way that we build this business and make sure that the business model is is a real one. I think there's a tendency sometimes, particularly in Silicon Valley, to raise an, an absurd level of capital on the hopes that that a business emerges at the end of the day. And I think because of the nature of how we built this business, we like to think that we're sort of focusing on the right things and want to build something sustainable that will will actually stand the test of time. And I think that's where the business and the, the technology are really well aligned. You know, the architectural decisions that Martin, Dana, David made, even in the earliest days of Presto at Facebook, were really with the foresight of thinking, you know, we want Presto to be a multi-decade project, something like a MySQL or Postgres that's been around for, for a really long time. And I think similarly, as we sort of lay out the architecture for Starburst, we'd like to see the same kind of thing and, and build a real sustainable business. What were those first two years like, building a profitable business? Was it mostly around consulting? It started with consulting and support and then quickly graduated to that open core model with really the first enterprise feature being role-based access control. We introduced that in maybe the summer or fall of 2018. And that was a critical feature for us, I think, to start to really convert to enterprise subscription contracts. And that really allowed us to accelerate the business. You know, it, it was a ton of fun. Like I said, it was also a ton of hard work because we were always understaffed, right? By definition, I think to, to run a profitable business, you almost have to be somewhat understaffed, at least relative to the venture model. So, you know, the first year was me selling. Then we had a couple of guys selling along with me. And, and it was just sort of, you know, laying one brick at a time as we, as we built the business ultimately up to a little over 50 people, I think, when we first raised money in the fall. So, you know, that was a lot of fun. Now it's the next chapter, which we're, we're certainly accelerating that growth and we'll quickly surpass 100 people now as we continue to grow that business. Why did it take so long for a Presto company to come into being? That's also a good question. I, I think a big part of it is that I think Presto was overlooked as a SQL on Hadoop solution. I think it was sort of miscategorized that way in a period of time where each of the large Hadoop vendors had their SQL engine of choice. So they weren't gonna choose Presto because let's say Hortonworks already had Hive, Cloudera had Impala, and MapR had Drill. And I actually remember while I was at Teradata, I approached Hortonworks and I said, hey, you guys should include Presto in your distribution. 
and they were like, no, no, we've, we've got Hive. So, you know, I think that was just the mindset at the time. You know, they'd all placed their bets. And so Presto was sort of an afterthought. And I, I think the other piece is that I think Presto got better and better and better, a little bit under the radar. I don't think a lot of people knew how much we were investing while we were at Teradata to really improve the engine. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, it's it's actually really awesome, solid technology. And and now I think a lot of people are probably asking that question. But, you know, it, it sort of had the room to grow a little bit under the radar, which I think was good for it. Do you have any benchmarks off the top of your head for how Presto performs compared to Hive? Generally, I would say at least 10x. There are benchmarks on on our website and, and certainly ones that we could point you to, but generally at 10x plus in terms of performance. Do you have any knowledge of why Hive didn't go in the direction of being more memory-centric? I guess it's just, just the fault tolerance side of it, the reliability side of it. They were more interested in reliable batch processing. I think that's exactly right. Because that's what they were good at and what so many people deployed Hive for, it sort of, you know, became, I guess, the ball and chain around their their leg on trying to advance or change that architecture. And also the, the code base for Hive just became so complex over time. I think the participation of so many different parties without much strict you know, code quality, you know, governance around the project made it very hard to continue to extend. I, I think, you know, my hat's off to the Hortonworks team for everything that they did to improve it, but it was no small feat to even get it where it is today. Yeah, that use case for like reliable nightly reporting, I guess you wouldn't really want that to fail. And that was pretty big hive use case, right? Like people have integrated pretty tightly and relied on pretty tightly. Yeah. And, and also, I would say like batch-oriented ETL jobs. You know, I think, again, going back to one of those early reference architectures in the Hadoop world, a lot of it was take the data into Hadoop, prepare it, and then pipe it into a Teradata or some other traditional data warehouse to do the analytics. So, so many of those, those workloads were essentially being piped into something else. And I think people found that, you know, Hive just wasn't delivering enough of a query performance to actually do interactive queries against the data directly with Hive. When you look at the potential for AWS to build a Presto, I mean, AWS does have a Presto offering, right? The Presto on EMR thing. That's right. And how does that feature functionality compare to what you've built thus far with Starburst? Yeah, good question. In fact, I'll even plug AWS's other offering as well, which also competes with us, which is Athena. So Athena is actually Presto under the covers. Not everybody knows oh, that, but, didn't but it, know that. yeah, yeah, it's actually Presto under there. So I'll, my answer will kind of apply to, to both of those, which is that I think this is where having the committers to the project is really critical. Not only can we ensure that our releases of Presto are the most stable, most up-to-date with features because we're driving the project forward, but also it allows us to make sure that our open core model of sort of extra enterprise features are features that AWS doesn't have. So interestingly enough, you know, we mentioned Glue Catalog is one of the catalogs that we support. That's obviously an AWS data catalog. AWS didn't support statistics for the cost-based optimizer for Presto using the Glue catalog. We did (laughs) before they even sort of thought about it. So I think you'll see continuously as we go forward here, we'll be consciously making sure that 
the enterprise version that we put forward is well differentiated relative to what you'll get on EMR. And I think that's the important thing to understand about AWS's approach to open source in general, is they're generally just pulling a release from GitHub and essentially making it available. And because of that, you know, it's prone to stability issues, you know, in many projects, and certainly Presto is this way, the releases may come out every couple of weeks, and nobody's necessarily regression testing those significantly in the community. So these are areas where, again, you know, Starburst can differentiate around performance, stability, you know, the newest optimizations to the query optimizer that we talked about earlier, security, connectors, etc., Whereas they're sort of in the position of essentially just taking whatever, you know, we make available for them, you know, but we, we also think that, you know, anything that is good for Presto is ultimately good for us. So there, there's no doubt that there are many people using EMR Presto today or Athena today that we think of as, as potential future prospects for us going forward. And given that that is the strategy, the Amazon, it's like basically the Amazon basics. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that's Am- a great analogy. Amazon Basics, Kafka, your Amazon Basics, MongoDB, your <laughs> Amazon Basics, Presto. Yep. Knock off, like, I'll buy it. Hey, I'm wearing Amazon Basics jeans right now, or Amazon <laughs> Essentials. Like, I love it. Like, that's all I need, sure, right? Sure, I don't really, you know, it, I'm not going outside today. <laughs> but from your perspective, why do people change their licenses? If this is all... Amazon is doing is making Amazon Basics Elasticsearch. Why do companies feel compelled to change the licenses around open source projects to insulate themselves? Yeah. Well, I think this is partially a consideration of what scale you're at as a business. I think, you know, the companies who have changed those open source licenses that that you're referring to, you know, many of them, Mongo, for example, are now multi-billion dollar businesses where every little bit sort of counts. You know, we're still in grow the pie mode, I would say. So for us, maybe less threatened by, you know, what particular, you know, market share that Amazon has. I don't think we have to have 100% today. I think it's more about growing that Presto market, broadly speaking, at least that's the way I think about it at at this stage. But, you know, I I think some of those other companies are trying to capture more of their own market. And that's why they're thinking about it that way. And, you know, I'll say, I guess, in their defense that, you know, Amazon does profit off of their labor. So, I, you know, it becomes even personal at some level. I think, you know, these, whether it's the companies or the individual developers themselves have invested, you know, tons of time and money in building this project. And yet, you know, Amazon, you know, monetizes it almost as well as they do. So I think there's some some personal element there as well. And do you feel it's a erosion of open source norms or is it just a natural evolution i guess probably maybe at no other time in history have we really had this kind of cloud model that maybe changes the script a little bit in terms of you know amazon can essentially offer software for free if if it wants to and still make money off of some margin on the infrastructure and that puts them in a very powerful strategic position i think relative to all the markets that they play in around aws but i would also say that i think there is value in the kind of enterprise features and capabilities and i think a lot of people 
particularly enterprise customers want to choose best of breed. And I think that's where there will continue to be a market here for these. I think like the doomsday scenario would be that none of these vendors make money anymore and therefore they can't even contribute to the open source. That would be very bad. But I don't see us anywhere close to that at this <laughs> no, point. No, yeah. no, probably not. I mean, it's hard to imagine a business big enough to be worth copying by Amazon yet not big enough to subsist right <laughs> despite amazon's right pressure right i'll also say just one other point on that topic cuz aws is i mean we could spend hours just talking about aws i think this is an area where the other cloud vendors have chosen to differentiate as well by partnering with these same vendors that you're describing rather than competing with them and thinking of that as potentially a competitive advantage for those clouds, right? Like they're all competing with AWS as well. And so rather than having their own flavors of these various open source projects have been much more keen to work with the vendors to provide those best of breed solutions, perhaps even as first party offerings on those clouds, but really embracing the developers of the open source itself. Although to a large extent, that doesn't matter that much today, right? Because like most of the people who are going through a cloud provider to get Elastic or MongoDB or Confluent or whatever, they're desiring the integrated experience, right? And like, mm-hmm. if I have, if I want an integrated experience, it's probably because I want it on AWS, not necessarily. I mean, there are people who are on Google Cloud, I suppose, and maybe that would matter. But yeah, I mean, I understand that the differentiating point of the cloud provider, and it's it's interesting, but. Yeah. I mean, does it matter to the market today? Like, do people actually, does it matter to the customer today? Well, I think there are some customers who are certainly persuaded by, you know, Azure or Google's approach to their offerings in that, you know, they're, I think, both trying to offer premium products, essentially, you know, better products to the market in terms of, you know, the capabilities built there. So some customers may make that choice. I think a lot of customers are also thinking about the cloud very holistically and what are the costs here or the costs there. But I think the the other potential benefit for vendors is that many large customers are starting to sort of hedge their bets with respect to their various cloud vendors, right? So there's also the, the multi-cloud approach. So if you can create a stack that is agnostic to any one cloud vendor, then again, you've created some flexibility or optionality for yourself. And so I think some, some of the larger, you know, more sophisticated customers are, are thinking about that already today. Last question. How will the data ecosystem look different in five years? Yeah. So I think First of all, you're going to see more and more uh, shift to the cloud in terms of workloads. And I think this notion of storage compute separation will become more and more kind of table stakes for data analytics. So I think you're going to see that even the traditional databases like uh, Teradata, for example, will increasingly embrace this storage compute separation. And I think they're all you know, hard at work on, on sort of how can we store the data separately from the compute so that we can be more cost efficient because it really comes down to sort of cost economics. And I think that's another really big thing that the cloud movement has sort of brought to the table is being able to manage your costs on an hour by hour basis. So your infrastructure has to be able to allow you to have that efficiency, right? And that's where like auto scaling, again, as a feature, I think, you know, used to be maybe a novel concept, but I think will increasingly become almost table stakes for any large enterprise to get the most out of their infrastructure. And that's part of what the cloud affords that on-prem doesn't, right? On-prem, you have to buy all the infrastructure up front and you're paying for it whether you're using it or not. 
In the cloud world, that's not the case. So if you can be very efficient with how you're using those resources, you can actually make a real difference for yourself. So I think those kinds of features will, will become increasingly important for all of the database vendors in the space. Justin, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. When you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com slash sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt, it's an on-call shirt. When you're on call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com sedaily and try out VictorOps, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. VictorOps integrates with all of your services, Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool, and you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor. 